this week on the Backtable Podcast. I think the important thing is you can kind of practice how you want to practice. I think that's that's what's one of the many great things about it is that, you know, there was a uh, declutter person, a Marie Kondo. She was the like decluttering guru. Sure. She said, if it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. And so I practice like what I want to do. And I really enjoy UFE. I really enjoy taking care of fibroid patients. And there are some people out there trying to do everything. And there are certain things that they don't like to do. And they kind of do it, you know, reluctantly. And again, that comes through to patients. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. My name is Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I am a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. Today we have a great episode lined up, but before we get to our topic, I'd like to take a moment to recognize our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RadPad.com for more information. You can contact them at info at RadPad.com for a free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. And if you do contact these guys, please let them know you heard about it from the Backtable podcast. Thank you to RadPad. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. John Lipman. John, would you take a moment to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure. I'm a solo interventional radiologist in private practice. I finished residency training 30 years ago, and I've practiced just about in every possible type of practice arrangement you can think of. That we can talk about the different practices. Uh, I was in academics briefly. I've been in a traditional community radiology practice. I was and currently am solo IR. I had a you know service contract with a hospital providing IR services. I then had a joint venture with a hospital to provide IR, and then a little over five years ago we built a OBL, and so. My current practice is in an office-based lab and own the uh, ground floor of a two-floor office building just outside of Atlanta. That's awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, the type of procedures and patients that you see in the OBL? My practice is really niche. I have a women's interventional practice. We treat primarily and are known for our work primarily in uh, treating fibroids. But we also, the common thread is that we treat conditions that are either seen exclusively in women, like fibroids, or at least primarily in women, like migraines, like osteoporotic compression fractures. So we have a women's interventional practice. Okay, understand. Any fertility built into that? We used to do uh, permanent birth control. We uh, placed Escher. In fact, we did a fair number of Escher placements. And unfortunately, that device is not available any, any longer, not due to the device's fault, really doing, due to the operator's fault. But we do the reverse. We open 
uh, blocked fallopian tubes. We do a fair amount of fallopian recanalization. So yes. Okay. Interesting. Can you kind of talk about some of the referral patterns with your practice? Like you mentioned that uh, you guys have been the freestanding um, outpatient-based lab for five years now. How do you get patients? Through a number of sources, I've been doing this for a number of years now. I've been solo over 15 years. And so we've built a, a strong reputation in the community for our work, particularly with fibroids. And so a lot of our referrals come from you know, word of mouth and our relationship with the community physicians, both internal medicine and family physicians, as well as gynecologists. We have a lot of gynecologists in Atlanta, and we have a very strong, good working relationship with a number of them. And I think that's really important to have that good relationship with gynecology. It's sometimes when people start to do this GYN work, particularly UFE, and it seems like it's plus one for the IR and minus one for the gynecologist, that's where they kind of bristle. And it's really not a zero-sum game. There's plenty of work and you can grow both practices. The other other point that they bristle at is that if they have to do the, you know, post-procedural follow-up of patients and they they are right to to be upset with that. So you have to be first the patient's uh, physician. You have to be a clinician, not a proceduralist. And that's probably the most important thing. You're, you're their doctor. Sure. I feel like that's a, that's a sentiment that's been echoed again and again, you know, from the leadership at SIR down. Uh, so I also, also noticed that you do a fair amount of advertising on Instagram or I don't know, or promoting, like, how did you, like, was that something like, how did you get tapped into that? Like, how did that even become an idea? Well, I mean, you know, Social media obviously is is so important because, sure. you know, my own family doesn't really understand IR. I mean, right? You know, you go to a family gathering and they look at you crossways when they ask you, "You're a doctor, right?" Well, yeah. What kind of doctor are you? And like nobody like goes, "Oh yeah, IR, cool, yeah, I know this guy IR in my town." You know, no, like nobody know nobody has any clue about what IR is. You know, we, we that's another area we need, you know to tell our story better. And so social media gives you that platform. And so, you know, I use um, Instagram a lot and I use Facebook a lot. All right, let's, let's go through and kind of discuss a little bit about like when a patient comes in to the offices of Dr. Uh, John Lipman for a fibroid, what does the uh, preoperative or the pre-procedural evaluation look like? Well, every patient that we see has been seen by a gynecologist, uh, it's pretty rare for somebody that hasn't been seeing their gynecologist. They may not be referred by the gynecologist, but they've seen a gynecologist and had a GYN exam. They've likely had an ultrasound of their pelvis. Usually that's where the diagnosis has been made and they're suffering with the symptoms from fibroids or maybe that's just presumed fibroids. Menorrhagia in the large uterus doesn't necessarily mean fibroids. And so they're kind of sick and tired of putting up with these symptoms. They typically don't like the surgical options that have been given to them. So they come in for a consultation and we will get an MRI, pelvic MRI in everybody, a, a, a non-contrast pelvic MRI, so no IV contrast on the initial exam. And then we will go over those images uh, in the office with the patient, either in person 
or with the COVID stuff that's been going on, we've done a lot of telemedicine. And so we'll see them remotely, but we'll go over those images. We'll talk about symptoms, what, what's bringing them into consultation and see if it fits, because that's a really important thing. You've got to not only have fibroids and you have to have fibroid symptoms and they have to fit. Sometimes the fibroid symptoms don't fit with the imaging and, and they're not a candidate for UFE, they're a candidate for something else. And that's another important point is to make sure that you can, you know, know about these other things because you, again, you're not a proceduralist, you're the patient's doctor and they expect, you know, to, for them, their expectation is for you to take care of them regardless if it's a UFE or not. So, you know, th there's some, we, we have a lot of trainee listeners and also some people who are early in practice. Can you kind of talk about some of the things that uh, you either struggled with or that you've kind of worked out now that you've been in practice for this long, kind of doing uh, this procedure for a long time? Some of the things that I'm not saying tripped you up, but some of the, the pitfalls that you've seen early on in cases of symptoms not matching up to the imaging or, or vice versa, or, or times when you had to think outside of the box of uh, fibroid embolization only. Sure. Well, I think the very first thing is to make sure that you understand. For me, it was understanding fibroids, understanding what the symptoms fibroids are and understanding how it's, you know, been treated and where UFE might fit in the armamentarium for treating symptomatic uterine fibroids. So you kind of got to go back, you know, sometimes to your medical school textbooks. I did that for a little while early on just to try to understand the clinical side of, of the equation. Cause frankly, I didn't have all that information about, you know, what the GYN was seeing when they see a patient, what, what are the questions they're at, you know, asking the patient and what are they looking for and how they approach it. And so that's really important. You gotta, you gotta have a strong clinical base. And if you're doing fibroids, this is what you have to do. If you're doing critical limb ischemia, obviously you got to understand, you know, the, the surgical aspects of, you know, what the vascular surgeons are going through. So for me, it was going back and, and looking about fibroids and about the treatment of menorrhagia particularly. So for instance, if we have a patient and I saw one not that long ago that had menorrhagia, she had fibroids. But the fibroids were really peripheral. They were subserosal. They weren't very big. They were nowhere near the endometrium. So I knew that the patient had fibroids. The patient had significant menorrhagia, and that was her only symptom, but it didn't fit. So I did a saline sonohistogram in the office and saw uh, a couple of three, four millimeter polyps and was able to tell the gynecologist who was thrilled that the patient could have hysteroscopic, you know, removal of these polyps. And that took care of it. Gotcha. Excellent. You touched on the fact that all of your patients get an MRI before moving on past the initial evaluation. I guess my question is, do the patients come to you and, and you've already set it up to where they have an MRI to discuss? Or do they come to you for initial consultation, you get an MRI and they come back for a follow-up in, in pre-procedure or evaluation or discussion of the MRI? For patients that are local in the Atlanta area that are coming in for a consultation, we try to do that all in the same day for their convenience. So they'll go to an imaging center, they'll have the MRI of the pelvis done, and they will get a CD and they'll just bring it to the office. And so we'll do all the, it'll be back to back, MRI and then to my office. That's, 
for a, you know, patient convenience. Now there are patients that will see us remotely either outside of the Atlanta area and they will get an MRI done wherever it's convenient for them and then mail it to my office. And then I will see them remotely with the telemedicine solution that we use. Okay. Excellent. Has the telemedicine, did you have telemedicine before the COVID-19 took off in February, March or was that yes. something you've met? Okay. That was good. Yeah. We, we ha we've had it for some time, largely because to say, we do see a fair number of people from outside of Atlanta, even other countries, believe it or not, and they don't have anything, you know, at their disposal, there's no IR where they are, or there's no IR that's convenient for them. And so Atlanta, one of the benefits of Atlanta, Delta flies nonstop to just about anywhere. And so we will see patients from outside of Atlanta. Okay. So taking a left turn a little bit, can we kind of talk about some of the technical components of, of how you perform uh, uterine fibroid embolization? And, and I guess we don't have to, to discuss the, the nitty gritty of every portion of the procedure, but are there any components of the procedure that you've had to modify or get creative with? I mean, is there any difference between practicing in the OBL setting and then maybe something like practicing in a hospital-based system? I think the biggest thing is, you know, you're really focused um, not only on patient care and the quality of your work, which is, you know, goes without saying, but once you're in the OBL setting, you're, you're also looking at cost and the hospitals, you know, uh, don't look at cost as much. I mean, they're more recently, they, I'm sure they are, but when I was in the hospital life, if you will, a number of years ago, cost really wasn't as big of an issue. And you, you had all sorts of different things on the shelf and that probably has changed over the years, but we really do look at costs, not only of, you know, what kind of products we're using, but labor costs, we're looking at energy costs. We're, we're looking at every possible way to see if we can provide the same quality with a cheap, you know, cheaper price, a less cost. And, you know, we can leverage that cost because as I say, for instance, I, I can get an MRI in Atlanta for 285 bucks. And so that's pretty much on par, if not as good or better than ultrasound. So when people talk about getting MRIs and up, they're so much more expensive than ultrasound, not really. You can find these places that depending on volume will do, you know, a much lower price product. Yeah, that sounds like a very competitive price. I mean, I have to admit, like, I, I, I don't know if I could have guessed the price ahead of time, but less than $300 sounds very competitive for an MRI of the pelvis. Well, for instance, my daughter, who was having some shoulder difficulty, unfortunately got an MRI of her shoulder at a, at a local hospital here, unbeknownst to me, and it cost her 1200 bucks. Wow. Which I thought was outrageous. And sure. I wish I would have known of that on the front end. <laughs> So going to back to some of the technical components of fibroid embolization, some of the things I wanted to ask you specifically about are, have you incorporated something like superior hypogastric nerve blocks into the procedure? Is that something that uh, has made a difference in your practice or you found as a good fit for the OBL setting? I think there's no question that the people that are doing it, it works really well. I just haven't found it in my practice to, to make enough of a difference for me to do it. I, I did a few of them and it did seem to be totally fine. Obviously you got to be very careful where you're injecting and making sure that you're not intra, you know, intravascular, but 
for me, my, my typical UFE takes between 20 and 30 minutes with somewhere between six and eight minutes of fluoro typically. So, you know, it's a pretty quick process where I don't, you know, adding another, that would add another layer on something that really I haven't found to be necessary. My typical patient goes home. Every patient goes home within four hours of the procedure. I don't use any PCA pumps. I don't use any Foley's. I don't use any antibiotics uh, routinely. So that probably is different than a number of practices, but I'd say I've been doing this a long time and it just, those things have been of no value and no benefit. Sure. So another um, thing that's been in the literature or a part of some people's practice is intraarterial lidocaine. Has that made any kind of difference uh, in your practice or something? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think that's one of the, one of the things that's really helped a lot. Clearly there's, you know, post-procedural pain has been kind of the big issue with UFE in the outpatient setting. And there's a very good article by Rob Kirsch, who was one of the first people, you know, kind of on the wave of doing UFEs and doing a lot of them and, and studying it and studying the pain response. And he had a really good article on, on the pain response after UFE. And basically what you do with intraarterial lidocaine is you kind of take that first six hours where the pain is ramping up and it's, you know, it peaks around that, you know, t- that time frame just after that time frame, And you, you've kind of eliminated that uh, zero to six hours where, you know, in the, in the early days of doing UFE, patients really, after you finished embolizing them, they were in pain and they were in pain quite a bit for the post-procedural stuff. A lot of the patients, and that's why they were initially put on PCA pumps. But with intraarterial lidocaine, I think that's been one of the things that we found that really takes a lot of that out. So we don't get as many patients. In fact, I can't remember too many patients that have any kind of significant pain after we're done. Now, they will when they're discharged sometimes, you know, after, you know, they're home for, say, several hours, they, they, they will report some pain. Sometimes it's significant, but the number of people that have this really significant pain after UFE has dropped dramatically. Can we talk about some of the, the technical components? I assume there's a little bit more to it than, you know, I, well, actually, at first I should back up and ask, are all your uterine artery catheterizations, is it with a microcatheter or just a four French, five French? No, no, they're all microcatheters. All microcatheters. Again, I, I kind of have a little bit of a bias on that, I suppose. Yeah, all patients with microcatheters. And the reason is vasospasm. I mean, I, I've seen a number and talked to a number of colleagues who s- swear that they do most with a four French or five French. Yeah, I mean, technically you can do it, but I can tell you there's no question in my mind that, and you can't predict, you know, who's the one that's going to get, who's the patient that's going to get vasospasm. But once you get it, I've not found anything that's really that helpful of undoing it, like, you know, giving arterial nitro or some of these other things that you might do in other vascular territories. In the, in the uterine artery, you're pretty much sunk and you're going to under-embolize these patients. And, you know, again, you don't want to bring somebody back. Uh, that would be the fallback position. You're, you're kind of under-embolized and you know you're not going to get the result you want and then you're going to have to bring these patients back and that would be really detrimental. So I want to do whatever I can do 
not to get any vasospasm. And again, the, the times I get any significant vasospasm is almost unheard of. Right. So going to the intraarterial lidocaine, so microcatheter in the position of the uterine artery, and I guess just for the, for the uninitiated, you can talk about, you know, whether you do it, you know, mid embolization, post embolization, how much you give and, and, you know, what's, what's the rate at which you give it? What I use, and we can talk about embolic, I, I use primarily PVA. And again, that may be, I don't know if I'm in the minority, possibly. I've gone back and forth over the years, but I've done a lot of cases now. We do somewhere between uh, 500 and 700 UFEs a year. And so we get a pretty rich amount of data. And my go-to is, is just plain non-spherical PVA, 355 to 500. And so I will take a vial of PVA and have, and mix it, um, with a, you know, saline, six cc's of saline and 10 cc's of contrast and divide it into two syringe, two 10 cc syringes. And I'll give it with the 10 cc syringe, you know, on the back of, of the microcatheter. And we'll inject and we'll go to a place where it's pretty slow flow, slow forward flow. Not, it's not stasis uh, for fibroids, for adenomyosis, yes. And then after I've reached that endpoint, I'll give five cc's of 1% preservative-free lidocaine and then go to the other side. I use uh, a Cobra for the left side and I use a SOS for the right and microcatheters through each. And... As I say, it's a 20, maybe 30 minute, you know, procedure time. Sure. And so after you give the PVA and you're, you like the, the substasis or, or your, your input of choice, depending on adenomyosis or fibroids, you give the, uh, lidocaine always after the embolization and do you administer it slowly? Do you just kind of ram it in or. Is oh, no, you, you gotta, you have to do it after the embolization because obviously and that was part of the problem with some of these papers that were doing it either before, or in some cases they mixed it, you're going to cause vasospasm and then you're going to kill your endpoint. So you have to do it afterwards. And then you got to go slowly. I mean, because you're at an endpoint where the flow is pretty slow and you'll feel the resistance. The more you put in over that five cc's, you'll start feeling more and more resistance to pushing and you got to be really careful. So I'll give a little bit uh, watch it. And then I'll put a little with a three CC syringe, I'll put a little contrast in not on fluoro, just put some contrast in, and then I'll come back with the rest of the intraarterial lidocaine and watch it. Cause say it, it'll reflux on you pretty easily. And so you just got to kind of be careful. It's a slow injection and say it's broken up over several different increments with Lido, then a little bit of contrast, and then Lido, a little bit of contrast, and then Lido, you know, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Once the embolization is done, catheters are out, you mentioned that your patients go home within four hours. Is it a jump to assume that you're closing a majority of your patients? Yeah, everybody is closed. I use a product called Vascade. I've used a number of different closure devices over the years. My particular bias is having something that's extravascular, completely extravascular. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with those more recently, I was using Minx, which was extravascular, but Vascade, I think 
for me is the best product that I've used in that it's not only extra vascular, but the, the few times I would have an issue with minks is that it's a little harder material. And so in some patients that didn't have very much fat at the puncture site, I would get a phone call like the day after the procedure or maybe two days after, and the patient would say, there's pus coming out of my wound because minx is kind of pale yellow. And so the patient was kind of freaked out by, obviously, if they thought, you know, pus was coming out of their wound. And it was, you know, basically expressing this hydrogel out of the easiest route, right out of the wound. And so with Vascade, it's much softer. And so it, it doesn't do that. I have not had that happen to me since. And the, and the other thing is, even if it doesn't come out, sometimes, again, in patients with not as much fat on board around, you know, the groin area, you can feel it like a, it's a hard, like little BB. And it was kind of irritating to some patients. Yes. I've, I, I can echo that sentiment uh, about the minx is that, you know, the irony is that in the, the skinnier patients are the ones you're more inclined to have problems with. Either, either the hydrogel is kind of expressed out through the wound and, it, you know, delays the healing and, and confuses patients or they feel that little BB underneath and it's, and it's unsettling for many patients. Also moving to uh, the post-procedural care. So we already talked about four hours in the OBL, then home. What are some, or what is the, if you don't mind disclosing, like what, what are you using for a pain regimen for patients? Either, maybe we should even go back to the, the preoperative. So what are you doing, I guess, to make, make sure that your patients are comfortable for, for their entire length of stay? Right. I think that's really important. A lot of times we're thinking like just, okay, what are we going to do post? But as you mentioned, a lot of the stuff that you're doing for the post-procedure start really before they've had the procedure, when they come into the center. We use a number of things. I love IV Tylenol. I think the Ophirmiv is, is done really well. We'll give at least one dose, which is a thousand milligrams. And sometimes we'll give a second dose. So they'll get that when they hit the door, you know, as soon as they come into the center, because I may give a second dose as they leave. We use Toradol. Toradol is really good. We give our patients a little Ativan. I think that's helpful to kind of not that every patient is anxious, but, you know, they're having a procedure and it, I think that is really helpful. We may or may not give them Dilaudid, depending on, you know, their pain at the time they're, they're having the procedure. Well, certainly Dilaudid is a, is a good go-to in the immediate post-procedural period. Those are kind of the pre-medicines. And then we'll use the standard fentanyl Versed during the procedure. We might add other things like Dilaudid or, you know, that might accentuate, you know, trying to get uh, pain, pain control, occasionally morphine, but those are the main things that we're using. And anything preoperative, I, I know that some people use uh, dexamethasone, you know, pre, pre-procedurally for TASES. I didn't know if anyone, or you've had any experience that with your fibroid uh, population. You know, I, I think that's really interesting. I, I, I've been meaning to try to get a number of patients where I try that in. Dr. Kim from Korea actually came to visit us in our center, and he was the one that told me about it. And I know he's written about it. I've read some articles from him. And so I, I, I really have been meaning to do that just to try to get a, a, a gauge on that. But he, he swears by it. And, you know, certainly as much anti-inflammatory properties, I think, are helpful, that probably would be something to add to the armamentarium. I, I just haven't personally used it in my experience. 
Okay. And when the patients are going home, what what have you found has been helpful to send patients home on that, you know, r- reduces, you know, what, what has been your post-procedural pain regimen to help prevent either, you know, just the pain or, or callbacks, bounce backs, things like that? Well, I like oxycodone, but because I've given them IV Tylenol, I'll just give them regular oxycodone, not Percocet because I've already given them at least a thousand milligrams and maybe 2000 milligrams. So we'll send them home on oxycodone, prescription strength Motrin, uh, 800Q6, a stool softener, Colace, BID, and then Phenergan suppositories. And I'll have them take this, the first one when they get home, even if they're not nauseous, because I, I think it's good to get it on board because some people, when they get pain, they get nauseous. And so getting that on board when they get home is helpful. It also makes them a little drowsy perhaps, and they can kind of sleep through some of this post-procedural period at home. Sure. And then once the, the patients go home, and, and I don't know if you've had any experience with this, but if, if a patient does have problems either with pain, nausea, or whatever, what are the mechanisms by which they either get in touch with you or do you have uh, privileges at a hospital to, to direct them? So what happens to the patients yep. afterwards? Uh, not just the regular patient, but the patients who are, are having either intractable pain, nausea, or something going on? Well, every, every patient that I see has my cell phone number. So they have me and they, they know that they can get a hold of me. And while some physicians kind of go, wow, I can't believe you do that. They really don't abuse it surprisingly or not surprisingly. I mean, so everybody has a way to contact me. I think that's, that goes a long way because, you know, when you don't know what to do as a patient, you don't, your doctor's not available. Somebody else may be on call for them or they're getting somebody that's not familiar with their with them at all, it can be, you know, upsetting to them, or, you know, at least, you know, they, they're not sure what to do. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a comfort to them to know that they can reach me at any time. That being said, I think just like the pain and what we give medication wise, we talk a lot in the consult and set the table for expectations afterwards. And I think that's really important as well to, in a sense, lower the number of, of these kind of calls that you're going to get because we go through thoroughly. I mean, the, the consult that we do for a UFE takes anywhere from 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And so it's pretty thorough in talking to them about what to expect afterwards. And not only the conversation with the patient, which is obviously important, but the conversation with the patient's husband or friend or whoever is the caregiver uh, in that really important time right after the procedure, there's going to need to be a, somebody with that patient the night of the procedure. We tell patients that you need to somebody to drive you to the center. You need somebody to spend that first night with you as well as uh, drive you home. So that first night, we need to talk to that person and have a conversation. They also get written instructions. We have pretty detailed instructions on you know, what to expect, what to call us about. So we really try to leave it so that there's no ambiguity whatsoever on, you know, what you need to call us about and, and how you can get a hold of us if you need to. Sure. I think having, uh, it's almost like a, a discharge instructions with a frequently asked questions 
section available to the patient and having already gone over it with them before the procedure is is monumentally helpful in, in decreasing the amount of uh, post-procedural anxiety and, and calls and things like this. So switching gears a little bit about from from the procedure to kind of how you built the practice that you currently find yourself in. You mentioned that you, you've been in every situation uh, or every a- agreement an interventional radiologist could have. How do you like, I guess the, the open-ended question is, how do you like the OBL setting? What, what kind of drew you to that? Well, we talked about it even when I, we had a joint venture with a hospital to provide IR services and that hospital was itself a joint venture. And even though we love the joint venture arrangement, I think it's fabulous for anybody that can get a joint venture arrangement. There are not many around anymore. I think that's a really nice way to practice as well. You basically get a fair market value for your services and you don't have to bill or collect. It's a, it's a very nice system if you can convince a hospital to kind of to share. A lot of hospitals don't want to share with physicians and that's really unfortunate because I, one of the things I've seen over the 30 years is the transition from the hospital being run by doctors to the hospital being run by hospital administrators. So I, I have no love lost for them. And similar to the kind of player, you know, major league players like baseball or football versus the owners, I think that's a, almost a similar kind of thing with us. But anyway, then maybe that's a podcast for a different day. Right, right. Uh, deep topic. Now that you're in the OBL setting, what what have you found that your practice has changed or what have what have been some of the things that you've done to help develop your practice in the OBL? Like I imagine like when you get started, there's there's got to be a learning curve. And so I was kind of thinking if you could talk to your early on experience. I think the one of the biggest things for for me in the OBL world was the kind of business aspect of it. You know, go, even going solo many years before the OBL, I was pretty challenged from a business aspect. Uh, I didn't know really anything about owning a business or running a business. And so that was uh, very eye-opening. And I think if somebody wants to do this and they don't have a strong business background, it's okay, but build your team, you know, get a team of people like that. That's kind of what I did. I, you know, I, I got business person in the community who was a friend of mine. I talked to him a lot, had a lot of lunches or dinners, you know, talking about business and how, you know, he approached business uh, in his industry. And obviously you're going to need legal help. You're going to need financial help. Likely you're going to need capital. Say I own my space. And so, you know, you, you've got equipment. I mean, my office-based lab is a full angio suite. I have a GE Innova system. It's a full, it's not a C arm. It's a, you know, a full lab. So there was a fair amount of capital expenditure on the front end. And that can be kind of, you know, scary to some, I guess, you know, it was a little scary, sure. But you you need the team is, is my point that you have a business person, you have a financial person, a legal person, and you kind of, you know, use the, the knowledge of other people to help you get up to speed on the business aspect. That's, that's where I saw the beginning challenges the most. I mean, I had a, I had been doing this in the outpatient world for a while. So my, I was pretty confident in my clinical skills. And I also had kind of a pulse of the community. I'd been in the community a while. I, um, kind of knew that 
we would be just fine. And even if I wasn't practicing at a hospital anymore, I would still, you know, be just, be just fine getting refers from all different sources, not just the hospital, but other places. Thinking outside of, of the local contacts and resources that you have, are there any national or broader connections that other interventional radiologists can tap into if they want to either, you know, just go on a thought experiment of what it would take to start an OBL or, or advice on, on getting, you know, set upon that path? Are there, are there any resources on a national level that are available for OBLs or oh, people who want yep. Definitely. Uh, the, one of the, one resource, which uh, wasn't available initially when I was striking out, uh, but is available now is the OEIS, the Outpatient Endovascular and Interventional Society. They have a, a meeting every year, and it's a really good one because all the people that are at this meeting are working in the outpatient world. They may also work in the hospital world, but either they're primarily or in many cases like myself, exclusively working in the outpatient world, whether they have an OBL or not. And it's made up of not only interventional radiologists, but interventional cardiologists and vascular surgeons. So you really, the cross-pollination is, is, is excellent. You, you get a lot of knowledge about operating outside of a hospital, working in the outpatient world, setting up and running an OBL, and even scaling the operation. There are a number of very entrepreneurial people out there, you know, scaling outpatient centers. It's always interesting talking to them. You learn, you learn a lot. And I really do think it's the way medicine is heading away from hospitals and into the outpatient world. And that's great. I think that's where, you know, doctors kind of get medicine back away from hospital administrators and back, you know, to where it's really brings the, you know, doctor patient relationship back in the front, uh, where it needs to be not in the back. So that last statement kind of touched upon a, a question that I don't know the answer to, but I wanted to ask you about was what's, what do you find to be the most rewarding part about having engaged in the OBL and having your own business and, and having, you know, total control of your patients and how they're treated? What do you like most about it? Well, I mean, you just pretty much answered it for me. I yeah. mean, it's, I mean, I love going to work every day. I mean, I, I truly, and people are like, oh, they roll their eyes. Like, come on. Like, no, really. I love going to work every day. It is, it's a blessing. It's a joy. Patients love coming to our center. It's so much easier and it's so convenient for them. They don't have to figure out a morass of a hospital and pay for parking. They can pull up right to the front door. It's convenient. It's private. We constructed the center based on women. So we talked a lot about, you know, with a number of focus groups on women, how would they want to be treated in a medical setting? And so privacy was really important. So every one of our patients has their own private room. They have a private nurse whose only responsibility is to look after them till they leave. It's the whole center is designed for women. I'm the only male. All the rest of the employees are female, but it is an absolute great environment to work in. I'll tell you my staff and you can talk to them. They love coming to work because like nurses in the hospital, they, you talk about physician burnout. There's 
as many nurses burning out, probably more. And when they come to our center, they can actually do what they wanted to do when they decided to go into nursing is to care for people. It, it's, it's so the, the positivity that radiates through the practice, patients pick up on it too. Because, you know, if somebody's not having a good day, you know, most of communication is nonverbal. You can't help but transmit that to people. But the positivity is so infectious, uh, patients really respond to it. And then they take that back to their referring physicians and saying, wow, that was the, the best experience I've ever had in healthcare. I mean, I, you know, when I went to the Four Seasons or the Ritz, maybe I, I felt that same service, but never in a hospital ever. Um, this is amazing. And it's, it really is. It feeds on itself. It's, we get lots of, a lot of positive comments and letters and, you know, it's, it's just a great environment to work in. If you could choose as an IR, what kind of environment, this is the kind of environment you want to work in. I think that's fantastic. And I think that's actually really important for, you know, young, younger interventionalists to hear that, you know, I just suspected I've, I've never been in the OBL setting, but it, there just seems something to me deeply satisfying about having created something like, and, and then being able to see that through, uh, to fruition and the direct patient contact and knowing that, you know, you're the, you're, you're basically responsible for all facets of the patient care and you can control it really down to the, the micro level. And so it seems something like very gratifying about that. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example of some, like some of the frustrations at the hospital there, there are too many to list, but just some interesting, you know, things that I found like patients were coming to me when I was at a community hospital and they were coming sometimes significant distances and, you know, they had to pay for parking. And they would then walk about a mile to get to me in the hospital where we had this office set up. And I went to the hospital administrators. And I'm like, can you just validate parking for these people? They're spending a lot of money with the imaging, with the procedure. And not only, you know, they get such great customer service, they come back for their other stuff. Like they would come back for their mammograms to the hospital. They would come back for their other stuff. And so they were, you know, making a lot of money on the enterprise, if you will. And I said, couldn't you just validate parking? I mean, that would be a nice thing. They would really like, it's a, no, they couldn't do it. <laughs> couldn't do it. Right. We had patients come from other countries to come to where I was working at the hospital and they don't have American insurance. So they wanted to pay for the procedure in cash. And the hospital person told me we have no mechanism for cash. I mean, really? No wow. mechanism for cash. I was like, oh, so we, we couldn't, you know, treat patients, you know, from outside. It, I mean, it's just mind boggling the inefficiency at a hospital versus I'm in a 5,400 square foot space equally divided between lab and recovery on one side and admin on the other side. So in the, every morning, Monday through Friday, I do cases in my lab and then literally walk across the hall to my office and see patients every afternoon. And it's the most efficient, well-run thing. I mean, it's just, it's a joy. I mean, it's, it's made me not only, I think a better IR, it's made me a better father, a better husband. I mean, it's, it, you talk about physician burnout. There's no burnout at our center. I assure you. It's, a, it's an absolute joy and a thrill. And I'm, 
I hope I can do it for as many years as possible, really. So that kind of brings me to my other part of the question is, is there, what is the, the biggest downside and, and maybe not much of a downside, but the biggest pitfall or and or downside that you've run across in, in working through the OPL, like something that you weren't expecting in terms like, but when you got into it, you're like, oh, wow, I, I couldn't have anticipated that, but that is kind of difficult and I've had to arrange for it or, or make adjustments about it. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if I listed as a pitfall, but working in an OBL, you're on an island. You're not at a hospital. There's no other colleagues around. You're it. You got to be comfortable being in that kind of environment. Certainly any new trainees coming out would not be in that kind of setting. It takes a certain level of comfort and, you know, clinical acumen and so forth, but you've got to be used to doing that. I would say that, you know, the medicine is constantly changing and the insurance stuff is constantly changing. And that's something that you really can't prepare for. I mean, you've kind of got to adjust to the ways people's insurance works. You know, for a while, there was a number of Obamacare stuff that we had to kind of work through. Patients had very high deductibles. So, you know, they could claim they had insurance and it was, I mean, in my opinion, this, you know, Affordable Care Act was more of a political stunt than, re than reality. It gave people the opportunity to have insurance, but my patients who are largely not with a lot of means, they, they had insurance, but they couldn't use it. They had these high deductibles that they didn't know what a deductible was until we had to, you know, explain it to them. And so they would have insurance, but they could never afford the deductible. So essentially they didn't have any insurance. And so the insurance landscape is still a challenge. We're co constantly talking to patients about insurance and certain plans. And while all the insurance companies cover UFE, for instance, everybody's plan is so different. And so some cover it pretty well and some don't cover it very well. I take everything, including Medicare and Medicaid. A number of specialists don't take Medicaid. I think it's important to do so. But you, you do spend time explaining uh, a patient's insurance to them. Sure. I can imagine that is a real challenge. Uh, one, a challenge to learn the language of, of the insurance and, and also then to, to recount that to the patients who maybe even have less resources available to them than, than we do. So, John, I think we covered a lot of material. Is there anything that, any final thoughts that you have that you want to like leave with the audience, like regarding fibroid embolization, the OBL, maybe how fibroid embolization dovetails very well into the OBL setting? Well, I, th I certainly think it's ideal in the OBL setting. It's a perfect, it's a perfect procedure to do outpatient and in an office-based lab. You can add other things to it like we have. There are even more things that you could add to it that we don't currently do. We used to do a lot of vein work and varicose veins, obviously more common in women. It makes a lot of sense. I think that we could easily add veins to what we're currently doing. And so you can kind of tailor it. You could even have breast procedures. You could have other things. You could have cosmetic stuff. I think the important thing is you can kind of practice how you want to practice. I think that's, that's what's one of the many great things about it is that, you know, 
there was a uh, declutter person. I'm trying to think of her name, uh, Marie Kondo. She was the like decluttering guru. She said, if it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. And so I practice like what I want to do. I mean, you know, I don't do say uh, peripheral arterial work. I used to long ago, but I don't anymore. And I really enjoy UFE. I really enjoy taking care of fibroid patients. And there are some people out there trying to do everything. And there are certain things that they don't like to do. And they kind of do it, you know, reluctantly. And again, that comes through to patients. And so, you know, we want to focus on this particular area of patients and we do a really good job and that's what we want to focus on. And we want to be the best that we can be at that. And really, you know, when you, you get down to it, I mean, you know, patients deserve that. I mean, you know, we should do our very best and do only what really we're passionate about. And if it's something that you're not that interested in, whether it's maybe dialysis work or some other facet of IR, don't do it. I think that's, I think that's fantastic advice. On that note to the audience, I want to thank you guys for listening. We covered uh, a lot of material today. Very excellent topic. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps uh, platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. Guys, if you haven't already seen it, please go check out uh, the new updated website. We have a ton of new content on there. That can be found at uh, www.backtable.com. We're really proud of it. And special thanks to Brian Schmidt, who helped us get that off the ground. John, we appreciate you coming in. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I hope that was helpful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.